Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, online courses, and grief projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Just $3 per month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. This week, I'm speaking with the creator of the documentary Being Enye, Denise Salaire-Cox, about belonging and identity in the aftermath of loss. After the deaths of her father and brother in her teen years, she found power, belonging, and community in sharing her story with others. We'll touch on why creating spaces of belonging and being willing to belong are so vital in grief. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Denise Solaire-Cox is a mom, wife, award-winning filmmaker, international speaker, podcaster, author, and transformational leadership coach. Her work has been featured in Forbes, CNN, NBC Latino, Chicago Tribune, and many, many others. She's been the featured speaker in workplaces like Facebook, LinkedIn, Yelp, the Smithsonian Latino Center, Yale University, Google, Procter & Gamble, and Starbucks, just to name a few. Denise is also a two-time TEDx speaker. Her work is dedicated to helping people transform how we experience culture, identity, and what it means to truly belong. Grief Growers, I'm really delighted today to introduce you to Denise, who is the producer, creator, the voice, and the vision behind the documentary being Enye, which is all about identity and belonging uh, in the Latinx community. And I'm really excited to have her voice on the show to talk about her own loss story, but also um, the grief of lost identity after somebody we love dies and the joy, belonging, welcoming back that happens when we reclaim identity after someone we love dies. So Denise, welcome to the show. Uh, And if you could start us off with your lost story. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I have to say, I have never been on a show like yours. And I'm super um, honored to have been asked to be here to talk about something that I I very rarely talk about. Uh, So I have two. And um, actually, there are they're both in my film being Enya, um, but they're not, they're not I, either one. I, I'm not used to sharing about them often. And so uh, the first one is my dad who uh, passed away when he was 47. I was 13 and he was uh, diagnosed and died within 90 days of stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, which was incredibly fast and devastating um, for so many reasons um, in my family. And then my brother, uh, whom I was very close to, almost like a twin, uh, we were only about a year and a half apart. And this is, you know, he was my first favorite person in the world, I'll say. And he was killed in a drunk driving accident when I was uh, just barely 17 years old, and he was 18 years old. So having both of these so close together, I think between the ages of like 13 and 17, I'm like, ooh, critical yeah. time to be alive, to be figuring out your place in the world, to also be learning what emotions are. <laughs> because yeah. as teenagers, we're like, oh my God, I'm feeling anger for the first time. I'm feeling angst for the first time. I'm feeling rage or numbness or... Um, like really excited giddiness or being in love for the first time, like all of these giant emotions were physiologically learning how to be emotional humans. And then to have all of this massive grief happen. Mm -hmm. Let's see, what am I getting at? Um, Is how did this 
change you then? How did losing both your dad and brother change you then? And I wonder how it's gone on to inform you now. Yeah. So I would say, you know, it's interesting what you just said, like the normal teenage emotions. I've got a 12 year old going on 13 in just a few months and I'm seeing her at, um, intense feelings and remembering what it was like to feel so intensely and and to feel a little out of control with those feelings. And you know what I mean? Like they just kind of come in waves, I remember. And, um, and then, yeah, on top of that, having to lose my dad and my brother, um, it was like more, it was so intense that I could like, I felt like I could barely get through it. Um, I, I realized as an adult that I kind of treated it, it was, it was so traumatic that my memory of that time, like my mom will ask me, hey, do you remember when we did this or when that happened? And it's like I have no memory other than these two points that happened right at the beginning of my freshman year of high school and then right at the beginning of my senior year in high school. And everything around those two points are just super blurry. Now, um, after my brother died, I definitely had decided because, you know, there were those two deaths, but I had also experienced other varieties of trauma, we'll say, um, earlier in my life, uh, starting at a young age. And so I would categorize my entire childhood as one of just extreme, extreme emotional challenge. And I, uh, I had made a decision that I would say when I was 17, like I am just the most unlucky person that I know. And so I'm just going to have to accept this, that um, that I am just going to be the recipient of things, uh, negative things, people dying, things going wrong, terrible things happening to me personally and to my body. Um, just, I would, I was kind of surrendering to a life that didn't seem like it was going to work out for me. And the thing that was sad about that is that I was so young having, you know, to make that decision, but in a way it was, it was like my 17 year old version of accepting it, you know, and like yeah. the very best I could do. And luckily um, I would say, I think it was about four or five years later, I found myself in my first seminar, uh, like a transformational type of seminar. And when um, I realized that, you know, it was the first time I, I, I heard that we make up stories about things that happen to us, right? There's facts. And then there's what we make up about the facts. And I never heard that before. And to me, a huge light bulb went off and I thought, wow, here are the facts. My dad and my brother died. And what I made up about it is that I'm unlucky and I can make up anything I want out of this. So I'm going to make up something different. And so from about 21, 22, um, well, to now, I've been making up something, um, something that makes me feel better about the whole thing, but certainly not unlucky. But when I meet teenagers, this is the weirdest thing. So a lot of my like childhood was kind of a blur. Uh, and especially those years, those teenage years, high school years, very much of a blur. But what's very bizarre is that I have this... Um, ability to connect with teenagers, like, like nothing else. Like I can literally hang out with them and, um, I'm a speaker as well. And so I get called to speak at fortune 500 companies, but I also get called to go to high schools. And there are a lot of speakers that will not set foot in high schools. Like it's like the last place anyone wants to get on a stage. (laughs) And for some reason, it's like my absolute comfort zone. And I just, I, I can remember that pain this quickly. Like it doesn't take me a lot. I have not forgotten it. It's right there. And so when I'm with them, I can identify with the regular teenage angst and then anything called life happening, I can completely get it. And um, I feel like in many ways that's a silver lining because it keeps me, I don't know, in a weird way, it keeps me young and relevant, I guess. And like, um, like in a, like, I think it's cool when a teenager feels misunderstood and that, and that all of a sudden someone sees them. And I guess I have that ability to do that because of this. Yeah. And I, I literally just wrote down, I always take notes when I'm on these calls with people, I wrote down 
the gifts of grief. And this is something that I hesitate to talk about because I never want to imply that grief in and of itself is a gift. Right. But I think there's often things that inadvertently come as a result of grief. And in this case, like your heart for teenagers and mm-hmm. remembering like this, po- this specific pocket of time, these four years in here, mm-hmm. not only the angst, I hesitate to say like the, the surface level of angst, but there's like the general angst that comes with being a teenager. Yeah. But then there's all these other life things that happen. You said, you know, anything under the umbrella of life getting in the way or life happening to you that adds on to it. And so it's like there's geological layers of mm-hmm. angst, grief, twistedness, confusion that you're like, I have a heart for this because I remember living there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like I no longer occupy that house, but I remember living in that house. And so I can come back there with you and we can sit in it together. Mm-hmm. And that's just a really beautiful um, gift of grief. I mean, I would say I have the same thing for for girls in their 20s who lose a parent um, because that was that was the reality of my experience. So loss in college is very um, close to my heart, you know, yeah. being away from home, being striking out on your own for the first time, figuring out who you are in the world. And then the whole thing comes crashing down uh-huh. um, on the, on the precipice of launching into the world. And then the whole thing crashes and burns. Yeah. Um, and so I think that grief growers, if you're listening and you're really new to your loss, I'm like, don't know if you need to worry about the gifts yet, mm-hmm. but those who may be farther along in their journeys or farther away time-wise from when the loss happened, you might start to see like where your heart lives or who you have a heart for, especially in meeting other grievers um, in your journey. Yeah. I wrote down um, when you were speaking about the, the, this revelation or this decision that you made as a 17 year old to, I'm just going to decide that I am an unlucky person and I'm going to live an unlucky life. Yeah. Um, it, it presumes that life happens to you. Mm-hmm. And so there's very much this visual of I am a human and I'm being acted on by external forces. Things happen to me and I have no control. And then this thing that happened years later, 21, 22, 23, when you went to the seminar of um, you get to decide the story of what that is, that's within your power. It's very much a shift from external things happening to you to I can respond to mm-hmm. the losses that happen. So can you speak more on like what that shift was like? Yeah. Yeah. So what, so this is the thing is I, I would take back, like if I could, I remember after both of them died, I would have dreams with them. And, um, and I, I'm sure this is a common thing, but I would meet them somewhere and you'd be like, Oh my God, daddy, like, how are you here? And like, I would know, um, I, I would know I was dreaming, right? But I also knew that he was really there. And it's because I could smell him. And um, and I just 100% believe that he was, his energy and life force met me in my dreams. And I literally spent the entire dream pleading with him to come back to life with me. Um, so that, and I said, I won't say anything. I'll just pretend like you never died. Um, I just like, you have to come back. Like, I cannot do this without you. Right. And he would laugh and just say, I just can't like, it just, that's not how it works. I can't, but I can give you hugs and I love you so much. And literally this had, this went on for the first two years after my dad died. And then a few years after my brother died and I would meet my brother and my dad together and just, it would always go the same way. And I would, again, have that sense of their smell of their bodies, which is just such a bizarre thing, but that's what kind of what confirmed it to me that I was really meeting them. And um, so even though I, you know, that obviously didn't work out. <laughs> we had to scrap that plan. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work out. But, uh, but it was such a lovely, um, it was such a lovely time and way to help me t- transition at like through my grief without with both of them and like I said the dreams happened for a few years um I would take them back in a second like if someone could wave a magic wand I would take them back in a second like you know if it you know and it would mean my I'm convinced my entire life would be completely different I would be completely different right so I just want to say that first uh and since that's not the case I had to I just chose to make a decision that I would become, well, in the case of my brother, I really admired 
who he was. Like I said, he was like my favorite person, my first favorite person. And what I missed most about him, I realized could be the gifts, could be gifts that he gave me, if that makes sense. So he was a very charming, lovable, amazing, funny, great guy. And so I decided that I would take all of those personality traits, I would say, um, and decide that he gave them to me. And so he could still live within me if I worked on those parts about me that, that I fell in love with, with him, if that makes sense. And so I decided that even though he wasn't here, he could still be here with me. Something I made up, something that gave me power, something that made me feel very fortunate to have that he modeled for me. Um, and then my dad was, I felt like, you know, I, I made up that my dad, that I had enough, like that whatever I got was all that I needed and that he could go since he needed to go at that time. But he gave me all the gifts that he, that he was here to give me. And so I could find that love with other people. And, and that's also been really interesting. And, you know, I'm on the verge of tears talking about it, but I have extraordinary relationships with men. And I often look for the same quality uh, that reminds me of my dad. And so my husband has, a, has really embodies my favorite qualities of my dad and my business partner, same thing. And there's just some extraordinary male figures in my life that I've been able to kind of, you know, have around me. And, um, and I feel like that's a tremendous gift. And then I'm very fortunate to have that male energy around me. So, you know, it's weird to say, you know, I would take, I would take a life back with them and, there's stuff out in the world that is also that also feels like a great blessing of almost equal value. That just gave me chills. <laughs> that last sentence, because I think I think I ring true with that as well, and so many people will as well, because we all agree. Like what, nobody ever comes to grief being like, I'm so grateful that happened. <laughs> right. End the sentence. <laughs> it's I'm so I'm so grateful to be alive right now and be living the life that I'm living but I would take everything back in a heartbeat if they would be alive again, if they could share this with me. Um, and, and I love this. Um, it's almost a conjuring. There's something divine happening when you see the traits of your dad and your brother and other people. It's like, I've conjured you back into existence in some form and fashion. Yes. And I wholly also acknowledge that it's a choice to see that in the aftermath of loss, because sometimes going in, it's like, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see anything that reminds me of them. It's too painful. It's too hard. It's not really them kind of whatever experience or story that you want to come up with in your brain. But I've noticed that as even more time continues to go by after the death of my mom, um, I look for her even harder in other people. Um, it's like, I, I continue to seek her, but with more depth yes. um, as, as she gets older. So there, there are people who, um, who have the same physical characteristics as her. They like have her same arms or same oh, hands. And I'm yeah. like, Oh my gosh, I want to see you all the time. Show me your hands. Oh. Um, <laughs> which is too fun. But then also people that cackle when they laugh, like their whole head goes back and they cackle. I'm like, that's my mother who just oh. showed up. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. And it's so wonderful. And I loved um, in the initial email that you sent me, you said it's so strange because you work with a lot of people who have the same name as your brother. Oh my God. And so it's almost as if you are surrounded. It is the weirdest thing. I never, uh, when I hear the name David, it just, it always takes me back. And, but I never had a lot of Davids in my life and started working on this film project, which was really what I believe I'm here to do. And it took me a really long time to get here and I'm locked and loaded, made the movie, built a business around the film, making another film. And, but it was, it was a 17 year long journey to even make the first film. Right. And then we'd be hiring people or people, you know, cameramen or sound guys or editors, um, people that, you know, I want to interview people's, you know, like all the, I mean, there's so many people involved in making films and uh, 
like another David, like, that's so crazy. Like, I'm like, hi, David. And then even my business partner, we'd sit across the table and I'm like, another David. Like, it was weird. It was like, he was, he was totally there. And I felt like he wanted me to know, like, he is there, he's having fun. And whenever I, whenever I feel him, he's always laughing and having a great time. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, but that's how I kind of knew whenever um, I hear songs or anything. Um, I just, I just decide to, to know and feel and believe that he is here uh, because I know that he wouldn't want to miss anything. Just like if it were in the reverse, I would be bugging him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bother the crap out of you. <laughs> An interesting story about my first daughter who's 12. So my brother passed away around Thanksgiving and uh, killed by a drunk driver and um, my daughter, first daughter, um, was a preemie. And I went into labor the day I went into, I actually had preeclampsia. Do you know what that is? It's a mm. really dangerous thing to have. And, um, and they had to put, like, give me this medicine to make my body um, totally like paralyzed so that um, I wouldn't go into a seizure, which is like the number one cause of death for moms in, uh, you know, when they have a baby or something like that. So anyway, um, they shut my, my, my doctor said, I'm going to shut your body down right now. And we're giving you all this medication. Cause it was serious. Like I got three hours of medication in 15 minutes and I would, I, I couldn't move. And, um, he said, you, you're, this is now all up to your body because your body um, will either know that the only solution here is to is to release the baby, um, and or uh, by tomorrow, if it hasn't released the baby, uh, we'll have to induce you. And he's like, just get ready to be in the state you're in for the next 24 hours. And it was like uh, 11 o'clock, right? And I told him it's not going to go until tomorrow. Today is my brother David's 20th uh, anniversary of his death. And this baby is coming today. So please don't go home. Please just like hang out because she is coming today because he is like, he is here. This is happening. And I believe everything is going to be okay. And a few hours later, she was born. And it is like, it is impossible to, to like wake up on that day and not have the birth of my daughter, like just be there along with the sadness. Like it, he just made sure something else beautiful happened that day. And it's, it's a, I felt like, you know, when you're a mom for the first time, the greatest gift is your children, you know, and that he would, I don't, I felt like he had something to do with making sure that she came early and that she came on that day so that I would not be sad anymore that he was gone. Yeah. And this speaks to something we talk about so often on coming back of how grief is like holding two experiences Mm. and you can't let either one of them fall. The one is like blinding joy and the other one is searing pain and you carry both forward together with you into the future because you can never fully release the pain of grief or the memory that it happened. But then you also have new experiences that, that add depth and add joy and add lightness to it. And so it's like you carry these two vessels, but you can't drop either one of them. Um, I love this for you. And I want to go into the making of being NYA, of how it came to you, why it's necessary, what it is, why people should watch it, um, the vision of it. Yeah. So thanks for asking. So um, I always felt from a very young age, which I feel like a lot of people feel this way, this sense that, or this knowing that you're here for a reason. And uh, in my case, it was, I just had these uh, whatever it can be construed as delusions of grandeur, like a total egomaniac or just somebody who wants to make a big imprint <laughs> on the world. I'd like to think of it as the latter, but uh, I always felt like, no, I'm just here to do something big. I just don't know what it is. And I, it just always had this nagging feeling. And, um, you know, so I went through all these, you know, traumatic, difficult experiences as a kid, did the seminar, which was a real um, grounding moment in my life. And a, mo- a moment of, I would say, reinvention for me and, um, you know, inventing myself as somebody that is, has all the blessings and we can get into that. But anyway, a few years after that, I, um, I had an idea while 
drinking at a bar with my friends. And I'd also, along with having all the trauma, I was raised in a Latino household. My family lived in the Bronx. My parents saved up all their money to buy us a house just outside New York City in the suburbs uh, of New York City in a beautiful, beautiful, very Americana uh, kind of place to grow up, uh, which is called Westchester County. And we were the only Latino family there. And all of their Latino friends were left behind in the Bronx or in Spanish Harlem um, at the church that they met and got married in. And I always felt very much like I, I didn't fit in, like I wasn't um, Puerto Rican enough for my family in Puerto Rico when we would go visit them. I was the gringa, which is not fun to be called the gringa when you're not. And um, and then I was, you know, a, people would call me names uh, and bullying me when they found out that I was Puerto Rican um, in, in New York. And so I never felt like there was a place for me. And, um, I didn't know. I always said, I wish I had a rule book. Like, this is what it's going to be like. Your parents are going to be from another country, but you're going to be foreign here. And they're going to do certain things that are totally different than they, than everybody else does outside your house. And this is why, and this is, you know, and so you can choose, and all that stuff. And so I didn't get that rule book and neither did 16 million of my other counterparts, but I didn't know that my experience wasn't just my own until that night at a bar with my friends. And so we're all having a good time and everyone starts joking around one by one about certain things that are very distinct about being a child of an immigrant. And I realized for the first time in my life that I believed a lie that I was alone in my Latino identity. And the reason, and, and so it was so powerful for me to realize that because I thought already I had this traumatic kind of life, right? Or childhood. And on top of that, I had these uh, identity issues, struggles um, that that went completely unaddressed. So at the very least, my the deaths of my dad and my brother were addressed with lots of therapy, right? Uh, then in my teenage years and well into my 30s <laughs> and uh, year, decades of therapy, right? Uh, books and seminars, all kinds of stuff. But like the stuff around my identity and my ethnic identity and how that would fit in and how everything would kind of play together I had zero context of understanding it and certainly didn't feel like anybody else knew what that felt like. Then I realized they, that I actually was understood and I understood them. They understood me to a, a depth that I could never, um, that I'd never experienced before. I'd never experienced a substantive level of understanding. Certainly, um, with the deaths of my dad and my brother, never met anybody um, in my 20s who had lost two close family members. So I always felt on the periphery of um, a lot of these conversations, right? Uh, And then on top of that, with my identity as a Latina, I'm not really understanding where I fit in. Also, just nobody understood, you know, no one really was talking about it. And at that time, when I grew up, there was no YouTube, no funny videos, you know, no BuzzFeed Latino, no nothing. And so, right, so nobody, no one to see, and except for books, and I had read all the books. The books were limited. I read them all, right? And so um, once I realized that that night, I I experienced a profound level of connection that I'd never felt before in my life. And I realized I, that I needed to make sure that as many other people experienced that feeling that um, as possible. I just felt this charge. Like I felt like I got my assignment. Like someone was like, okay, here you go. Uh, this is what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life, right? And and I'm like, a movie it has to be a movie. And I'm I literally was writing down uh, notes on, on on bar napkins and uh, stuck them in my purse. Drove home and I felt like, man, like I finally know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be making a movie about this conversation and about how people are really connected and about how we all believed a lie and we're actually really all connected. And I'm gonna. Like, I think this could change the world, like in my little world, like with all the kids that are born where their parents are from a Spanish speaking country, but they're born here. And this feeling of of disconnection, I can solve that problem with this piece of media that I want to make. And by the time I got home, 
I'd convince myself that I absolutely sucked, that I had no experience, that I wasn't the right person, that, you know, and I just had like every form of doubt that I possibly could have experienced in a 40 minute ride. And then for the next 17 years, I literally grappled with that voice of doubt um, pretty consistently. And so whenever anyone would say like, hey, you know, those conversations when people say if time or money wasn't an issue, what would you do? Right. Like questions like that, they're so fun to answer. And I always knew what I wanted to do, but it was too chicken to really do it. And I felt so not worthy of the project. And it was almost like it was better either done by somebody else or only um, existing in my words, my one day, someday descriptions versus actually having to deal with what it took to really work on it. Right. And so 17 years later, I decide to do it. And I still had no experience, even with YouTube, even with being able to Google stuff and read books. I had I had not known, I didn't know a single person who even made movies. The person that I ended up pitching the film to is now my producing and directorial partner, business partner also. Um, but that story um, is, 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 isn't as relevant as this. And so we got, we made the film. And while we were making it, he said, I want to include the deaths of your brother and your dad. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. Like I, um, and we really, we went back and forth on this a lot. And because he, you know, we were always trying to figure out what's the story. Now he's an Oscar nominee. He's won all the big film festivals. He's a very established name in documentary filmmaking and I am a first time filmmaker. So of course I'm going to defer to his, um, you know, creative, uh, ideas. Right. But I kept pushing back and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And he's also a therapist. That was his previous profession before he started making social justice films. And he said, this is everything to do. I'm like, this has nothing to do with, uh, my experience as an Enya. Cause that's what, if that, the letter, uh, the extra letter in the Spanish alphabet is what the Enya is. It's the one with the squiggle and the N with the squiggle, the Enya. And uh, he decided, I, I think we should make the story about your life. I was like, absolutely not. But then he, you know, he kind of convinced me that it was a good idea. And then he was like, and then I want to include this. And I said, absolutely not. And, um, and he, he shared with me uh, many times, it took me so long um, that m- the way I grappled with my identity, with my cultural identity, was very similar to how someone grapples with their identity when someone passes away, especially when they're young. But even when you're older, I mean, I really, it really is a thing. And when my brother died, I literally didn't know who I was. I really only knew me in relation to him. Like, and I would say it was more cute with my brother than it was with my father um, because I would sneak into my brother's bed and sleep with him at night. You know what I mean? Like we, uh, we could literally look at each other and knew what we were thinking. Uh, we had our own like way of communicating. We were twin souls, even though we weren't twins. And when he was gone, I literally didn't know who I was and I had to figure out who I was. And it was, I would say the first time I had to reinvent myself after my dad died, it was a different type of death. I I can't even explain. None, neither. They were both very difficult, but my brother dying jarred my identity. Um, in a, in a much different and more, um, way more significant way than when my dad died. Um, so anyway, so he did eventually convince me to include the deaths of, of my dad and my brother. And it's interesting how after being on the road with the film and screening it, you know, I mean, the, lots and lots of people have seen the film. I've been to over a hundred events where people have seen the film and it's fascinating how many people come up to me with their um, the stories, their grief stories, and how important it was to them that I include that because it really does get all mishmashed together. Because who am I and where do I fit in is a question you ask when it, in cultural identity, but it's also a question you ask when someone passes away. 
and um, and probably in other contexts as well. But they're they're both very much related. But here's the thing: I didn't want to share those stories because I had associated people knowing my truth with weakness. And I, part of who I reinvented myself to be was this person with a tough exterior. <laughs> so someone who couldn't be messed with, right? That's definitely not how I am now. I don't know. I don't know if anyone can hear that. I'm pretty much on the verge of tears this entire conversation. <laughs> I would never. I can see it. I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> Grief crowers. Yeah. So I would never allow myself um, the freedom of being on the verge of tears like this. And at any other time in my life, um, because it just, you know, at, at some point it just becomes too painful. And just, I just did it. I just, I did it without realizing that I was doing it. Right. But then when he suggested we should put it in the movie, I said, no, because when I was a kid, you know, everyone that I grew up with, we all grew up in, you know, went to elementary school, middle school, high school together. Many of the, I knew a lot of the parents, and after my brother died that senior year, I mean, the look on a lot of the parents' faces and the kids' faces, it's like they would do this head tilt and, uh, and like, it look at me with pity and I hated it. And I never, once I graduated, I went to school and I never went back. But I will tell you, every time I go back, if I see someone that I went to school with, that look, um, it's like right there. Right. And in a way, as an adult, I can identify with that now. Like I can see it. It's, it's unimaginable the losses I had to bear as a kid. Right. But then having to deal with their pity was too much. And I did not want anyone as an adult looking at me like that. So here's the thing. What I realized was that these two, these, these two deaths that I, that I kept like um, more or less a secret uh, or at least kept trying to control the narrative, right? You know, when I am okay with you knowing not, right? Like that's kind of how I- And not before, yeah. Yeah. And so, so nobody would know. And so I wouldn't have to deal at all with these conversations. And, um, and I remember my, my partner and I got into an argument right before- literally the night before we were to screen the film for the very first time in New York city. And the night we flew to New York, I live in Denver and um, we were going to screen it the next night. And I realized I had made a terrible mistake by making the film about my life, by including the deaths, by like, I just realized, Oh my God, I literally walked into exactly what I didn't want. Now I'm going to be known and I'm going to feel powerless and I remember telling him that, and he said, your power is not derived from your secrets, Denise. Your power is derived from telling the truth and from being authentic and being yourself. And I vehemently disagreed with him and said, no, I have felt very powerful with no one knowing about my life. Like I enjoy uh, in life not being known because I don't have to deal with anyone pitying me or judging me or, or making up stuff that doesn't, you know, that's not true. Right. When they have too much information, but it was already made and the thing was going to be done. And I'm like, I'll noodle on it. But I literally, I like, I'm having such a hard time with this, you know um, the idea that my, my, most of my life story would be in a movie like forever for anyone to see. And um what I realized was the next night and then 108 other times that I've been in the room is that it is the most incredibly, I mean, powerful doesn't even, powerful isn't even the best word for it. It is the most beautiful thing to be known. It is. And I wrote down, um, I love what your partner said because it's so full of wisdom and insight, but I wrote down being known and then it just drew an arrow, power, yeah. exclamation point. Um, and, and I think you're speaking to a fear that's so very real. And grief is, if people know how much I suffered, if people know how much I cry, mm -hmm. if people know how much I just don't care, if people knew how much I changed, mm -hmm. if people knew how deeply this affected me or effed me up, for lack of better phrasing, yeah, um, then this would destroy me. Mm -hmm. And it seems like another destruction on top of the loss we've already faced. Mm 
Right. And so it's not just to die, but to die again mm-hmm. and in being known. And so this is a very, very, very real fear. And what you were speaking of before is like, no, I've had great power and in, in nobody knowing my secrets. And the, the word that flashed in my brain was shield. Because there's a difference between a shield and being powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important distinction to make. And I don't know that anybody else has quite phrased it that way um, here on coming back. But, but in this film, it's like not only am I unlocking the secrets of what it is to be first generation Latina in the United States, um, to have parents who come from Spanish speaking countries and then to try to not assimilate, but to adapt in a culture or a, a nation that's different from the one your parents were in and to have to choose or to feel that strain and that pull, like all the secrets of that, in addition to unveiling the secrets of your grief, it's like there is massive power in having both of these stories married together in one film. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's it just was a shock to me. It really was. Because I will tell you with 100% certainty, I derived power from withholding my pain from any, from anyone, everyone. I felt like that was the power position, but really the power position is this and like open heart because what, what is pretty, what the only thing that's left after, you know, someone watches it is love and it's the film really cracks people open and it gets them in touch with their own pain and their own suffering. And then it's not about feeling sorry for me. It's about standing together in this shared, this shared pain and not for, you know, swirling down the drain together, but just recognizing we're all, we're human and we've, you know, you'd be so surprised and if, uh, your listeners won't, right? But one of my favorite, one of my most favorite things that anyone's ever said to me was, I was in a leadership program in my twenties in Miami. Um, and the leader said, uh, it was like a six month long program. And, um, the leader said, you know, look to your left and to your right. He's like, if you all make it through the program, you will know each other so well that it'll bring, like, you'll know each other so well, including what you've suffered through. Right. That, when you look at each other, it would bring you to your knees to know what you had to deal with in your life, right? And it was such an eye-opening experience because it's not like, um, I would say most people know the depths of suffering to the extent that I do, most people. But when I experienced it, I felt like no one understands the depth of my suffering, I think that's the illusion of it is it feels so lonely. Uh, but what my experience, well, back in my twenties, you know, in that six month program was the first glimpse of it. And then the last six years of my life, interviewing people for this film and being on the road with this film for years now, meeting people and people, you know, being in that cracked open state and sharing their pain with me. Um, I just, you know, I'm convinced more people than we can imagine can provide comfort if we all only were uh, if we all only were available to like share our movie if that makes sense yeah, yeah sure the the whole story of our lives um i think is might be what you're getting at and the thing i wrote down is um the thing that gives you power is releasing the fear that someone's going to find out mm-hmm. the secret And so it's like when you no longer have that fear, that's what makes you powerful. And I have to say that that for my own experience, when I find out the extent of someone's life, not just what they've lived through, but how they're managing to keep on living, I only grow Mm. in admiration for them. Um, It never shrinks. And I think that's true for a lot of people, especially grieving people when they hear other stories of grief is like, now that I know that you also have a grief story. Yeah. It's like, I, <laughs> there's a kind of trust that's built in, in mutual or similar suffering. And it's not the trust that's built of like our Westernized society telling the triumph story of, I went through this and then I overcame it. Yeah. It's, I went through this and I'm still alive. Like I'm surviving and I, um, have added, there's like a depth that's added 
And so there's a trust yep, that's yep. added. Totally. And that it's, I, it's so rare that I ever talk about this because I think I could count on one hand the amount of people I know who have, who have lost both the dad and the brother at a young age. Um, and I, I can remember the last one. And we were in a mastermind together last year. And as soon as she said, she saw my film and, um, and then we had this event in California and she said, I lost my dad and my brother too. And she just quickly said how, and it was like, we just gave each other a hug and it was like instantaneous depth of understanding. Um, there's just no, you know, it's like, you can't even put it into words, the depth to which we understand each other. It just stacks on. It's like there's a ramp up period to get to know somebody, right? A normal ramp up period. And once you know, uh, or for me, once I know someone has literally experienced the death, those two types of deaths at that, I mean, that's just like, like the bullseye of understanding, right? But then anyone that also has lost a parent or a sibling, there's a, that immediate relatedness. And yeah, it's not because we both triumphed over anything. It's because, and it is like, wow, I like, like I see, I see you and I see how far you've come. I can see it, you know, I, and it's just such a, it's a beautiful, it's a weird thing to find beauty in, but it is a beautiful thing. Compassion, right? Compassion. Yeah. And I want to speak to the girl at the bar who was writing down her dream on cocktail napkins right now, because it was as if the universe, the world, God, whatever phrase you want to use, was handing you this assignment of like, here's what you do with your life. And the goal of which was to bring this feeling of, I get you mm -hmm. across the world. And I have to say, without diminishing what being Enye is to the world, it would not be what it is without your grief story in it. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. So the level of understanding, not only of what it is to be Latina in this culture, in the United States, amongst a ton of white people, especially in the world that we're living in right now. But in addition to that, in also having a grief story, people in the audience are like, I know what that means. I speak that language. I know what that is. I have lived that experience. Mm -hmm. In addition to, yeah. I am first generation yeah. in the United States. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost like, I'm not going to hit him once. I'm going to hit him twice <laughs> yeah. with this level of, of deep and rich understanding. And I'm so glad that you didn't tear down the curtains the night before and just say, don't show it. Uh -huh. I am so glad. <laughs> I am so glad that it made it to the world because I yeah. think, I think it's needed and it continues to be needed in the world. Yeah. yeah thank you. And it's funny how, like how, how life works. Uh, Cause my partner always says, you're the perfect person for this because all the stuff happened. Because I, I used to think I was the, not the perfect person because all the stuff happened, you know? Um, but it was like, no, you are because of all the stuff. And it's like, how could there be something perfect? It just doesn't, it doesn't seem to add up, you know, but uh, it should be a disqualifier, but it's a qualifier. It's right. proof of your it's like your resume almost. Mm -hmm. It's proof of the fires that you've already walked through. Right, right. So um, yeah, it's it's really interesting how identity and how identity is really inextricably tied to both things, you know? And the idea of reinvention to me is fascinating. Like, who am I going to be now? And answering that question and understanding that every moment I can reinvent. I don't have to be any way that I decided was going to be the way I was going to be, right? Like I can be a new way and being able to pull from these two men in my life um, and my favorite qualities of them. Um, and then anything else I want, right? Like, uh, cause I, re you know, this is an interesting thing to talk about, but I, at a very young age, decided to use these qualities of my brother to keep him alive in me and also to get through the darkest part of my pain of losing him and then using that as a tool um, that I would use forever after that to find success in my life and success in this project and say, no, I am whoever I say I am, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder um, before we get to the very end, if you could bestow a vision of belonging 
on everybody who's listening right now, what would that be? I would say belonging is two belonging has two parts. So um, the first part is a willingness to belong. And so the person, so like in the context of, of what we're talking about, it's like, for me, I would bring, you don't know me, you don't know my pain, you don't know what I've been through. And I'm definitely not going to tell you, but I'm going to show up here and I'm not going to feel like I'm a part of stuff, right? Like living on the periphery of like in of physical spaces, you know, um, or in any space, just like never feeling like I can get in the middle of things. Um, so that comes with a certain behaviors in the real world, right? Like not participating fully, not engaging, not getting to know people fully, because if you're going to live on the periphery, insisting you're not insisting on holding on um, to the secrets or the just unwillingness to be known, um, then that's the, ex- the life experience you get, right? So it's almost um, self-fulfilling prophecy. And I know there's a part of grief that just, you just have to walk through the fire of that. I actually get that that's necessary, right? But it's, it's, it's okay to move through that. And it's okay to start moving to the middle of the room. And so um, how am I willing to be known? And I feel like it took me until my early 40s to be willing to belong fully. And for me, willingness to belong means not like I don't have any secrets, right? But I am willing to show you this piece of art that I made that literally just shows you my heart, shows you my pain, shows the truth about my reconciling my identity for you to take or leave, right? And enjoy or not. But it is, it doesn't take away anything from my experience. Um, and so that I would say is, is belonging, is leaning in so far in, willing to get hurt, willing to, you know, not love when people walk out of the room at my screenings when they don't get it. Right. And, and also willing to take in all the love when it's being um, thrust at me, right. Being willing to stay open to receive all the love and appreciation. And, you know, there are no places I feel like I belong more than rooms where people are like crying in my arms, right. Saying, thank you for putting into words what I've never been able to express before that is like the ultimate belonging, but the trade-off is my truth. The trade-off is I'm going to show you my heart. Right. And I don't know how I'm going to be in this moment because I've never been in this moment before. So like that whole sharp, dull knife thing, like, I don't know. And I, and I can't show up perfect because I don't know that there's any perfect way to be except for just to be here. Right. So that's belonging. And then the other side is being willing to provide spaces that people will feel safe to belong. And so that's all of our responsibility. And I was thinking about this yesterday about um, the fact that I'm an over-introducer. I call myself that. So if I, I often will over-introduce like, hey, do you remember this person? You know, like, oh, you, we all met here. Do you remember her? You know, or do you know her? She does this, you know, I'm always trying to like make sure that everybody feels extra comfortable because I know what it feels like to be on the periphery, right? Gift. Like anyone around me always feels welcome. And I just know how to do it because I know what it feels like. I know what I needed, um, but, I, but I also couldn't express it, right? And so being willing to provide a space where people belong is asking the question, what, how do you make people feel like they belong? How do you know when you belong? What are the things that can need to be said? Or what are the physical uh, ways that you can be and act that provide that belonging. And for me, I'm a, I'm, you know, they say Puerto Ricans touch uh, people more than like any other uh, nationality. <laughs> it's very touchy feely people. It's like, if we were together, I probably would have touched your arm and not let it go. Like, for- <laughs> like, what am I not grabbing you? You know, like we just love that feeling. And my, my girls are like that. They're very snuggly. And I just, I love that quality, but I, you know, I inherited that from my parents and I know that's how people feel they belong in my energy is because I'm, I give a lot of like, um, 
reassurance, like through touch, right? And so that's like a way that people know they belong in my house. I'm going to give them hugs, touch them, you know, on the shoulder. I don't know, stuff like that. I also over-introduce. I also never say you're welcome to join us. And I instead say, I'd love to invite you to join us. Like it would be so important if you came, like they would love this story. You know, like how can we be so that other people feel like they belong? And there's things we can say, ways that we can be. And that includes how we like show up, like with our bodies and our physical, like our physical world, you know, how are you, are you, are you thinking about people? Are you thinking about what's important to them? And then somewhere in the middle, if it was a Venn diagram, there's the magic where people feel like they belong. And those that are creating spaces for people to belong, feel like they've provided that. And both require leaning in and trusting. Um, but it's all, it's in a sacred space, right? Um, and it's a, it's a very sweet place of where both parties have to be vulnerable and stay vulnerable. I think that was perfect. I literally just did a little Venn diagram in my notebook. And on one side, it says, you must be willing to be known. And on the other side, it says, you must be willing to create spaces where people are known. Oh, and that's it. they, they kiss each other in the middle and that's, the magical space of belonging. And I think it's so true in grief. I think it's so true in non-white cultures, especially right now, living in the United States, is that not only do we need to be willing to be known with all of our secrets, mistakes, flaws, and misunderstandings, but we need to also be creating spaces where others feel safe being known by us. Um, Yeah. And receive those touches, that love, those hugs, that affirmation, that knowing, that belonging, especially for those of us in grief growers, I'm talking to you listening, we have received our own lack of belonging. And so we know what belonging feels like. Mm. And so to take, because we have known, we know what not to do uh, into the world and create spaces where people belong. We, it's one of those weird gifts of grief, if we can have gifts of grief mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. That's marvelous. Um, Denise, I would love if you'd let people know where they can find uh, Being Enya as well as any other piece of your work that you'd like to share with us here on Coming Back. Yeah, thanks for asking. So if you'd like to see my film, it's on my website and the website is projectenyeenye.com. So projectenye.com. And you'll see the two minute trailer and then uh, you can just put your email in if you want to watch it. And also if you are on Instagram, I'm there. That's my most favorite place to live. And anyone that's, uh, any Latino who's listening will get a lot out of it. And if you're not Latino, you will also get a lot out of it. I, I, they say like Instagram is there to like educate, inspire and something else, but I'm a hundred percent in the inspirational category. So if you're looking for a pick me up, um, to look at someone that has looked just terrible, uh, trauma in the eye and created a life that includes it, that doesn't dismiss it or pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, then please come visit me there. And at least you'll be reminded that you're not alone. Yeah. I get this visual for you, um, of like reaching my arms around, all the trauma and hugging it in as opposed to trying to push it out to, you spoke about the periphery or to the boundaries or to the edges. It's like, no, this is all coming with me mm-hmm. into the future. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Thank, um, you. thank you so much for joining us on coming back. This was really lovely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really great. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of coming back. Thank you so very much to Denise Soler-Cox for coming on Coming Back to talk about why belonging is so important in grief and her award-winning documentary, Being Enye. Denise came back by recognizing her power to tell a new story about herself and her losses and by vulnerably sharing her grief with others. You can find Denise's website where you can watch the full documentary of Being Enye for free at projectenye.com. And you can find that link in the show notes, Grief Growers. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. 
you'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening on July 27th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Special thanks this week to Heather, who is supporting Coming Back on Patreon. I am so incredibly grateful for you. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back. Because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.